Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 148. I'm having a simply blissful Wednesday morning. Just did uh, an interview for season eight that I'm so excited about and have been really looking forward to. Man, I can just be having like a weird day or a weird week. And if I conduct a podcast interview, it will almost always shoot me right to cloud nine where I stay for at least at least a day, if not weeks sometimes. Oh, so dreamy. Um, today's episode is with my friend Charlotte Bell. Um, I Charlotte and I did this interview like six months ago, but then I saw her like two weeks ago um, and I, I hadn't seen her since. And it was just nice to catch up and reminded me again, like just I don't know how cool she is. And then I was listening back to this conversation um, to take notes and stuff uh, like a few days ago and just thinking, man, just how lucky am I to like know so many incredible people? And I know this is something that I have said before, um, but I, I just have been thinking about it recently. Just I'm really, really grateful to have role models, um, and, and friends and, and artistic friends who are, who have lived more life than I have. Um, and, and Charlotte is certainly just a person that I look up to and I'm, I'm really deeply grateful to her for, um, sharing her, um, experience and, and her wisdom with me and, and, um, you know, in equal parts humility. And it's just, it's, it's just a beautiful thing to behold. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really, I'm grateful and I'm really into it. Um, I don't have any announcements. I, I, I've been saying this kind of every week, but I'm doing a lot of creative stuff, but it's just kind of mostly in my brain right now. Um, and, and, you know, happening, it's happening here on the podcast. It's happening in, um, I've been writing a lot of essays and, you know, having quite, quite the vibrant creative existence in my own little world and doing a, a medium job of kind of sharing that outwardly. But, um, but yeah, lots going on and many, many ideas and lots of projects percolating and I'm just excited. So, you know, for everyone who's listening, thanks for being here and being, you know, part of this little creative experiment that, that we're doing. Um, okay. I want to tell you a little bit more about Charlotte. Um, her bio, I think is longer than I will read. Sometimes I like print it out and highlight, um, the parts that I want to read, but I haven't done that. So I might like, I might stumble a tiny bit and I'll ask forgiveness in advance. Um, okay. Charlotte Bell has been practicing yoga since 1982 and began teaching in 1986. She has established and taught regular classes along Utah's Wasatch Front and in California and Hawaii. She also teaches workshops, teacher trainings, and yoga for cancer patients and their families at Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City. And then the rest of this paragraph is more um, different conferences that she's taught at and kind of um, her, her teachers. Um, the next paragraph, Vipassana meditation practice has had the most profound influence on Charlotte's work. She began her practice in 1986 and has attended many 10 and 30 day meditation retreats since then. We, we talk a lot about this. It's, um, one of my favorite kind of parts of our, of our conversation. And we get into this quite a bit more. Um, all of these influences combine 
to form an evolving style of yoga that acknowledges the alignment principles of the Iyengar system while applying mindful attention to gain insight into the truth of each individual's asana practice rather than striving for preconceived goals, which is some higher level shit. Um, Okay, and then she talks more about her teaching philosophies, which are beautiful, and we talk about them quite a bit in this interview as well. Um, And then uh, before I even knew that Charlotte was a was a yoga teacher um i knew her as an oboist so i'll read this last little paragraph charlotte plays oboe and english horn in the salt lake symphony the woodwind quintet um share zondo winds the chamber folk ensemble blue haiku um and with some with with all the members of blue haiku and adding in some new ones red rock rondo um and just for the listener um so I've interviewed several other people that are that are part of this, and I'll, I'll just draw attention to that in, in the interview. I should have looked up the episode numbers, and I didn't do that. But Charlotte's uh, partner and husband, Phil Philip Bimstein, I interviewed um, way back at the beginning before I was even defining the seasons. And then also uh, Flavia Servino-Wood um, is a violinist in Red Rock Rondo, um, and you can listen to her episode too. Um, okay, the, these are some facts about Charlotte Bell. Um, okay. Is there anything I forgot to tell you? I think I said all the things. Um, I hope you're having a beautiful day wherever you are. I hope you're being mindful and I hope that this conversation leaves you with something, a little something you didn't have before. Um, and you know, if you feel like telling me what that little something might be, I would love to hear it. Um, so with that said, and without any further ado, here comes my conversation with Charlotte Bell. Enjoy. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. So I feel like I've known you, like, I actually, like, I told this story, I think, to Philip and to Flavia, but um, I met you the first day that I lived in Utah. So I came, I moved, I moved here from Texas in um, 2012, in August, and Red Rock Rondo was playing at the um, Rose Wagner Theater that night. And um, Gary and Lori took me to go see the show. And so, yeah, you you were like in the first, you were like one of the first, you know, musicians that I met in the state of Utah. Um, but I don't, I don't know that much about like your background. So um, let's start by talking about like your childhood a little bit. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern Indiana, but um, really close to Cincinnati, So we were able to take care, um, advantage of all the, you know, great, yeah, the city, the great musicians and teachers in the city. Is your, is your family full of artists? Like, I'm, I'm always curious, like what the kind of, uh, you know, creative environment, you know, that we're born into or, or that you find as a child. Uh, yeah, my parents were both singers. They met because they were taking lessons from the same teacher, cool. the voice teacher. And they sang 
Sorry. Okay. So you were telling me about your mom, your mom. Yeah. My mother was a professional commercial artist. She, um, visual art. No. Yeah. Visual art. She did those, um, those very highly stylized fashion drawings for the newspaper back in the day. Those are so compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Before they started using photographs. Right. Wow. So, okay, so your mom was a professional visual artist and also a singer. And what about your dad? My dad was also a singer. And he um, had a number of different jobs before he ended up settling on being a manufacturer's representative for some very high-end furniture companies. So he sold to designers and five-star hotels. Did that feel, like, creative to him, too? Like, did he kind of feel like... I'm wondering if like an, being kind of an artist or a creative was like part of his like identity. Oh, definitely. I mean, he he played the clarinet. He was largely self-taught, although wow. he did take some lessons from um, some of the teacher, some of the members of the Utah or sorry, the, Cincinnati yeah. Symphony. Cool. So and then where are, are do you have siblings? And if so, where are you in the birth order? Um, I have two sisters and I'm the middle. Okay, great. So I'm wondering like what the, I'm wondering about the creative environment, like, uh, when you're growing up. So are you, are you put into lessons is like, are the arts just like a given in the family? Like what was the context? Oh yeah. The, um, music especially was a given in the family, but my mother was also, because my mother was an artist, um, we all, you know, did visual art as well, oh. and we all played music. My older sister played the flute. We all played piano. We had a Steinway Grand, wow. and we were not, you know, wealthy. My parents were not wealthy people. Yeah. <laughs> they were both Depression era, yeah. you know, grew up in the Depression, and, you know, fortunately got to come of age at a time when and when conditions were pretty favorable because of all the, you know, FDR's um, right. changes to to the way things <laughs> the way things went ran. Yeah. But um, so we all played piano and my older sister played flute and she ended up being uh, playing professionally oh. in the Birmingham Symphony for a number of years. And is your younger sister has been a professional artist as well or the two just She's a singer. Wow. And she um she went to visit my older sister in Birmingham at one point and oh. ended up finding a job. She was fresh out of um occupational therapy school. Mm. And she found a job, but then she began um, singing in this professional chorus in Birmingham, in Birmingham, and met her husband there who is a tenor. She's a a lyric soprano. Okay, cool. And she, um, this, this chorus was really incredible. I mean, they toured Europe every year and they sang at the Salzburg music festival and sang in Notre Dame. And so it's a whole family of artists. I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by these kinds of questions. Like, you know, I feel like a lot of my guests, it's, it's one or the other. It's like either like the, the whole family is full of artists or like 
the person I'm talking to is like the only one. You know, mm-hmm. It feels like it's like kind of, and I'm, I'm really interested in the way that like these different origins kind of affect our, um, like early relationships with art. So, um, maybe for you, I'm, I'm curious, like, can you remember, like, well, I'd love to hear you talk about like your own personal relationship to creativity and the arts, like, when you were a child, did you feel like that was like you had advocacy in your creativity or did it feel more like this is just what the family is like kind of expecting of me? Um, well, probably a little of both. I mean, sure. certainly the family, uh, you know, my parents were really passionate about music and and actually on the art side, my dad, on my dad's side, who he wouldn't have considered himself an artist per se, but um, my great, great uncle on my dad's side was a famous um, wow. impression, American Impressionist, Wow, John Twachtman. Cool. So it's just everywhere in the family. Yeah. So when you were little, you started taking piano lessons. And what else, what else, what else were you just kind of doing creatively? It could be like organized stuff or more just like play. Like what, what mediums were you playing with as a child? Oh, certainly drawing. You know, my mother would, would sometimes tutor us in drawing. And, and I always took art classes all through grade school and high school and college as well. Did you feel like... I know memory is like tricky and but I just do I do feel like those childhood that childhood context really matters like it feels that way to me um did you feel like um like were your te- did your teachers give you extra attention like did you feel extra comfortable in the arts like what was kind of your I'm curious about your like early relationship to your mediums to like you know, just did you feel like I'm a creative child? Like, what was it like? I don't know that I've ever felt like I was super creative, but I certainly, you know, when I look back on it, I yeah. probably was. Yeah. Um, my well, that's. I mean, I think when with a whole family of artists, it would make perfect sense that you would feel right. Like, but that, I think that's what I'm wondering because I could see it going either way. Like, if you have kind of this. Head start, maybe, because like the family is extra creative and you have that kind of support at home. I can see, you know, you being like your piano teachers, one of the best students or, you know, like your school teachers being like. And I, I'm curious about how like those things, you know, affect. Well, my piano teacher was wonderful. He was um, he just actually passed away not quite a year ago mm. in his 90s. <gasps> His name was uh, Frederick Garr, and he was the um, music director for the, oh, what's it called? I wish I could help. I can't think of, I can't <laughs> think okay. of it, but he was, he would, he was one of the pianists who played with the Cincinnati Symphony okay. when they needed a pianist and the uh, Playhouse in the Park. He was the... Um, the music director for that in sure. Cincinnati. And he was also, um, he was also really close with Beverly Sills and he would play with her when she cool. would come to Cincinnati. What was great about him for you? Like, do you remember what, like what lessons you have kind of taken away from that time? 
Um, he was just such an attentive teacher, and he was so supportive. And I really loved that whenever he would give me a piece, whenever he would assign me a piece, he would play it for me first. Mm, to give you and that inspiration. he was such of. an incredible player. It was just so inspiring. Yeah. What ages did you take lessons from him? Um, well, my first piano teacher was an older woman who lived at the end of our street, and she sent me to him after three years mm-hmm. and said she couldn't really teach me anymore. And so from about sixth grade to 11th grade. Okay, okay. And then when did you start playing oboe? Actually, I started in third grade, which was too early yeah. to start to for play that instrument. Read. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for just for the, you know, I was small. I was a small child, and mm. to be able to get a sound out of that instrument was, you know, you have to be a little bit bigger. Yeah. How did you pick oboe? Like, how did well, it, my parents it picked it for me. Why do you know why? Um, well, they want they loved woodwinds, okay. and my older sister was already playing the flute. I see. And they wanted to have a flute, an oboe, and a clarinet. Okay. Okay. And because I had, um, I don't know, I don't know if this is actually the case, but this is always what I speculated when I was sure. a kid. I needed to have orthodontia, and I think, you know, and I used to think, well, they just think that, you know, they're going to cure my overlay oh. <laughs> by the aperture. I'm sure that wasn't it, but maybe. <laughs> but. Well, my older sister actually had to quit playing the clarinet because of her overbite. Wow. And her orthodontia. Yeah. And so, it, you know, I just wow. thought that. But yeah. but actually, it was really a perfect instrument for me Tell because... Me I love the emotional range of it. Yeah. It and it just is so expressive. Yeah. You know, and I love the English horn, which I didn't start playing until much later. I had a roommate for a period of time who was an oboist. Mm-hmm. And I she was during the time that we were living together, she was um playing the Salome. Oh, uh-huh. and so I just got to like live with that piece for, you know, several months it was lovely that's great um did you did you love the oboe from the beginning or like how did your relationship with that instrument change like over your you know your childhood and your in your early teens um well when I started back I started back in fifth grade and apparently I was the only elementary school oboe player in the entire state of Indiana (laughs) I'm not surprised by that that's why I was thinking like how did you end up with this instrument because it I think it's an instrument that most people like get into by way of another instrument. Right. Right. And that's, that is usually the trajectory. Um, Usually people start on the clarinet or some other instrument and then, you know, it's determined that they have what it takes to do (laughs) the oboe. Yeah. Um, But. um, I'm wondering about your relationship with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think I, I probably really, started loving it not too long after I started playing it. And I, and I didn't have any other kind of wind instrument for reference, but, um, you know, my teacher who was the English horn player in the Cincinnati symphony would make my reads and I had a fantastic instrument. Um, my parents, when I was nine years old, bought me this professional instrument that, what when it came into this country 
it was regulated and um, oh, wow. and worked on by this very famous woodwind person named Hans Meinig. Wow. And Hans, he was in Philadelphia. He was like the premier woodwind guy for, you know, pretty much in the U.S. like a given for your parents to like invest that kind of money and care in your instrument or they just would have done that for any of you kids? For all of us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they understood that, you know, playing on a good instrument makes a huge difference. I mean, that makes a huge difference. Like, like I think about these kinds of things so often, like, you know, the origins of creativity, like the nature of talent, like, you know, this idea of like a person who feels like an artist, um, it's so kind of esoteric. Like, what is it? You know, what do these things mean? And lots of times I, I speculate that it has to do with the adult who taught you about art you know, modeling these kinds of things, like having this kind of respect for the instrument itself, like just this idea that your parents would know that the instrument matters. Mm -hmm. Like that is not a given, I think. Right. It's not. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure it was a really expensive instrument for them. Yeah. But that's what they chose to invest their money in because music was so important to them. Yeah. It was in the value, like deep in the value system of the family. Um, I know like you do a lot of movement now, like you do yoga. Do you did, were the origins of that? Like, did you dance as a child? Like I'm wondering like if the origins of like that passion were in childhood as well. Well, we did take ballet lessons for a few years And that's when I discovered that I was extremely flexible, (laughs) probably um, not in a healthy way. Okay. And it was probably way, way far on the unhealthy side of the spectrum of being flexible. Oh, really? I've never even thought of that as being like a healthy, unhealthy, but just like hyper, hyper extended. Really hyper mobile. Yeah, yeah. Um, My ligaments are, it's not balanced as I've come Mm. to understand but my dad was also a gymnast okay and so he was he was kind of a fitness nut before he sounds cool before there was such a thing you know there was Jack LaLanne back then but you know but there were it wasn't a thing to to be into fitness back then yeah and he really was I mean when he would travel um for his job he would stay in the YMCA so that he could use their gym. Yeah, wow. And so he could work out every day. I was just listening to a book the other day. I can't remember. Like I I do these long drives because I play in this wedding band and I'm in I'm in Jackson Hole or, you know, Sun Valley almost every weekend. So I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks and it's all a blur. But I was listening to a book recently that was talking about like the history of like exercise in America. And yeah, like I, I know this cause it's fresh in my brain that your dad really was like ahead of a curve there. Like that was not a thing. back then. Yeah. I mean, we would walk a lot. We walked to school, my yeah. sisters and I, and then there was one other family on our, in our neighborhood whose daughters walked to school and we would walk with them, but we would walk past all the kids that were getting on the bus. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't that far. It was a mile or something, but yeah. it, you know, in the that winter, was in the values of the family. Yeah, it was just my dad was way yeah. into keeping us fit, cool. and we would sort of grouse about it sometimes, like yeah. when it was raining or it was cold or something. Yeah. 
But I'm so grateful now because yeah. it instilled that habit in me of of choosing to walk. Like yeah. there, my mother would tell the story about how we used to, when we were really little, they would walk us to the Ohio River. The town I grew up in was right on the Ohio River. Yeah. And it was about a mile or something for them to walk, but they'd walk us all there. And she said that... Um, she heard through the grapevine that one of the women at their Presbyterian church was gossiping about my parents and <gasps> saying, I can't believe they can't afford a car. <gasps> you know, because they just assume that <laughs> yeah. if we don't have a car or if we're, if walking, we're walking, we must not have yeah. a car. Oh and we had gosh. a swimming pool that my dad built himself. Wow. Yeah. And so they thought, you know, well, they have a pool. Can't they have a car? <laughs> Did you have a car? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. We did. Yeah. We always had, <laughs> yeah. because my dad traveled for right. a living. But the but the the family ethos was to walk when possible. Yeah. That's lovely. Okay, I have another question about the family ethos. This is maybe a weird one. But, like, I, I know you as a person who is interested in activism and is interested in, like, you know, progressive, like, values and ideals. Um, and I always see that as creative too. Like that to me, like imagining a different kind of a world, imagining like a pathway to, you know, something better, um, that, that feels like a lot of creative thought to me. I feel like it's, it, li it lives in the same family as writing maybe. Um, and I'm wondering, did that part of like who you are like originate in childhood too, where your parents talking about issues like is that something you grew up with like a literacy about oh yeah, yeah <laughs> my dad was uh, <clears throat> especially was extremely politically minded um but kind of all over the map because back then you know it wasn't as factionalized it wasn't same, as right? it is now yeah. um by the time he passed away in 1984 he was full-on Jimmy Carter was the you know one of the best men we've ever elected as president and I wish George McGovern had won you know he wasn't that way when McGovern ran mm. but he was starting to kind of really change his after Reagan he yeah. um began to change his uh his political tune and became mm. much more liberal and my mother was very my mother was always very informed as well. And were there like, were there kind of difficult conversations happening at home, like about, you know, diversity or like, I, I just am trying to get an idea of like what it was like, um, yeah, in the family. Well, the, the town I grew up in was a sundown town. Okay. So, wow. um, if a lot of people don't know what that is, yeah, but I, I'm yeah. assuming you do, I but, do. Yeah. but maybe as I, since other people are going to be hearing Absolutely. this, the sundown town is a town where black people were not allowed in town after sundown. And so I grew up around that sort of racism. That's yeah. yeah. Racism, yeah. total racism. Yeah. And, um, my dad had his moments with that. Mm. Yeah. And I really didn't, um, Fortunately, you know, I had all these friends that I played with in Cincinnati Youth Symphony that were really different. And I went to music camps in the mm -hmm. summer and met a lot of diverse people. And so I didn't really buy it. Okay. Yeah. This is really interesting. Like, and this is, I'm glad you said that because this is kind of what I'm wondering is like, 
where does kind of your relationship with creativity and I, I think of these kinds of topics as being like part of that, um, creative thought, creative like vision about what kind of world we want to live in. You know, where does your like Charlotte's creativity, like kind of diverge from your family of artists, um, which is something I'm always interested in when I'm talking with people who, um, come from artistic families, like the point, the point at which there is like divergence, you know? Um, okay. That's really good to know. So yeah, tell me, I'd love to kind of just talk through like just your teen years, like really quickly. Um, and I, and I think really what I'd like to know is, well, I'm assuming you majored in music. I actually did. Okay. Um, well, maybe I'll ask the question a different way. I, I want to know like how you, um, like what point your creativity was at when you like graduated from high school and you were kind of making these decisions about what to pursue? Or- well, um, you know, I watched my older sister, you know, who became a flutist in the, in the uh, Birmingham symphony yeah. and was the principal sub in the Cincinnati symphony wow. out before she got that job. Wow. Um, I watched how hard she practiced, and I thought, you know what? I want to do other things in my life, too. Yeah. I I just assumed that I would have to practice four or five hours a day, yeah. and it just didn't feel like that was what I wanted to do, that there were other things I wanted to do in my life. Did you have pressure to major in music, like from your teachers, from your peers? Certainly not from my peers. Okay, yeah. <laughs> in the sundown town where I grew up, you know, I I actually felt like I kind of had to hide it because okay. this wow. town, the only thing that was worthwhile for a girl to be was attractive. Yeah. You know, and that if you... <laughs> there's plenty of places in the, in the country where that right. hasn't changed. And when you got... maybe even here. People who got good grades were ridiculed. Yeah. People who did anything outside of, of course, in Indiana, basketball is the religion. Yeah. Anyone who did anything outside of sports or, you know, being a cheerleader or whatever, you kind of had to keep that under wraps because you'd be wow. ridiculed for yeah. it. What were your other passions? So you you had said, like, there were other things you wanted to do, like, what were those things? Like, what, what did you have in mind for your future at that time? Well, I mean, I, I loved making visual art and, and I, you know, oddly haven't actually done much of that except for photography since, uh, since college. But, um, those things, they ebb and flow. And I've been increasingly like this summer. Well, I guess just in this past like season, I've been, it's a it's a recurring topic in my mind of like the crossover of visual art and auditory art. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of writing and that like writing is such a vague like writing can be like words that we write down. Writing can also be like telling a story. You know, that's a writing too. Writing is composition. And then I think about the ways that visual art is also like if you are a music composer who thinks visually, like, is your work visual? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Right. That's I just, interesting. I don't, I don't know that they're as compartmentalized as we talk right. about that is what I'm trying to say. Right. And then, well, there was also just a part of me that 
recognize on some level that it's a big world out there and I don't yeah. think I want to just focus on this one thing. Sure. Yeah. And so that I, wait, I think that's so interesting. That feeling of like this, that's that internal feeling. Was that like yours more than it was like your parents? Was that? Oh like yeah. A, tell me about that. Like, where did that come from? How did you f- discover it in yourself? I think that's, that's very you interesting. Know, I'm not, I'm not completely sure yeah. except that I did, I had my friend that I walked to school with for um, 11 years because she was a year older than I was, was a really interesting person. She unfortunately died of uh, breast cancer a couple years ago, but she was a writer and we would do, we would write things together. We would like write things and read them to each other. And so I knew that I really liked writing as well. And I had kind of not, my parents, I don't know if they were even aware of that, Yeah, yeah. you know, but there was that. And she, she was just a really interesting person. She was very, you know, at, when she died, I thought, I thought a lot about her and thought about how I wish that I had in some ways been more like she was because she was really different and she didn't care what people thought. Yeah, tell me more. You know, I was, I cared more about what people thought, what my peers thought wow. in my little small town. And wow. Chandra was just like, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like aggressive an arrogant or thing yeah. or aggressive thing. It's just, she was just who she was and, wow. and nobody was ever going to make I, her, conform to yeah you know to the norms in my town which were very narrow yeah and I think partly knowing her too I mean there was a it's a beautiful anecdote please continue yeah she was like she was into Edgar Cayce you know she was into this kind of esoteric you know spiritual stuff that I hadn't ever you know that I you know, would not have been exposed to otherwise. And I just had a sense that, and we spent a lot of time in nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we camped and we did stuff outside. And I just, I don't know, I guess I just had this sense that. She had something you needed to figure out or something. There was more to life. I think that's so beautiful. And I also think like, you know, I'm on one all the time about, creativity being this permeable, like larger thing. Like I'm really interested in the idea that the the arts do not own creativity Mm -hmm. and also that creativity is like essentially human and essential, you know? Right. Um, and I, and I, I love hearing these stories. Like to me, that feels very creative. Like even like I can imagine like I can, I can, I'm imagining being like a young Charlotte, <laughs> like I'm pr- sure I'm getting it a little wrong, but like the way that I'm thinking about it is like, you have these parents that in many ways are very inspiring, teaching you like really good principles, you know, teaching you about fitness and having that as a principle and being in many ways, like curious, like politically minded people, creative people giving, buying you this great instrument. Like these are such good things. And then having the kind of, I feel like it's creative, it's creative and also a little brave maybe to have this kind of respect for this friend who's a peer and to also think like there's something else, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I feel, I interpret that as like being quite a bit of advocacy, like 
in your own story, which feels very creative as well. Yeah. And I was also pretty stubborn. Yeah. Um, I'm a a triple Taurus. If that, you know, if that means anything, (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty stubborn and I, and I didn't want to be told what to do too. I'm sure part of the reason I didn't go into music is because my parents wanted me to, you know, and that's where my head was at that time. Um, So at this, like, you know, this kind of coming of age moment where you're like, you know, finishing high school and starting to kind of really have more decisions to make in your life, you are a fantastic oboist who could have majored in music and could have. Yeah. Right. I mean, I I definitely had some avenues at several places. And you're still playing the piano at this time. Yeah, I well, I got back into it. Okay. it. I didn't live with the piano for many years, so my okay. my hands are not, yeah. you know, what they used to be. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, again, like life goes places. Right. I'm only 34, but I know that already. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, you're doing visual art. What kind of visual art were you doing at that time? Uh, mostly drawing and pastels. And that's imp- but that was important to yeah. you. Yeah. And then you in, in college I got into photography. Okay. And uh, at this sorry, at this teenage like at this crux, what was your relationship to fitness at that point? Like what were you what were you doing? Well, I had been um I mean, I kind of took it for granted because I inherited my dad's body in many ways and I didn't really have to work at it. Mm-hmm. And so um you know, I ran track. I was really good run- at running, doing sprints and doing yeah. um, running long jumps and standing long jumps. Those are cool. kind of my That's my awesome. niche. Cool. Um, and uh, so at that point, it was like just a, it was a thing that you were maybe taking a little for granted. Yeah, maybe. because I just okay. didn't have to work at it. It's Fair. like my dad was an elite athlete. I mean, he he competed against people who went to the Olympics. He didn't ever go to the Olympics, but he was in that group, but he was, you know, he, he was not at a super high level, but at pretty high level. Okay, cool. And so, and he was just naturally athletically talented and we all inherited some of that. Isn't that interesting? Like it's, it's such an interesting thing to think about the way that our, like our bodies really are like inherited. Mm-hmm. I think I don't know that we do a great job in our country like acknowledging that. <laughs> like right. Oh, different it's people's true. different capabilities. And I would say that I'd say that to my yoga students all the time. Just because I can, you know, if I which I don't do anymore, just because I can put my ankle behind my head doesn't mean I did years of hard work to do that. Right. I was born with a body that just does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not like, I think a lot about that. Like, and I think that's a, that's a creative, it's a, it's an exercise in perspective shifting, I think. And I, you know, this is maybe a tangent, but you know, I went to North Texas, my degrees are in jazz studies and I come from a family where there is not a lot of creativity, certainly no professional creativity. And the ethos in my family is very like, Proper children learn to play the piano, but it's not something that we like care about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like just, it's a skill like math. Like it's just a skill that you should have if you're a proper child. Right. But it's definitely not like, there's no heart involved. Mm-hmm. And my family's, my family's ethos is also very like art is entertainment at the end. Like if it's not entertaining you, 
there's no purpose for it. Um, so for me, for me, like a Mormon girl from Mesa, Arizona to end up at the university of North Texas was a big anomaly. It was like crazy that I made it there. I didn't have any support. I didn't have mentors. I mean, I, I grew up in this very, very small, um, small, like small in the sense of like no diversity, mm-hmm. uh, Me no, too. like Mesa, Arizona, like, uh, you know, there's just not, there's no culture to be had, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when I went to North Texas, I was a fish out of water and so many of my peers there, I didn't know this then I didn't know to even ask, but so many of my peers had, they came from generations of musicians and had, you know, infrastructure in their youths. And I always just felt so behind, you know, but it's like, it just, I don't know. It was something I didn't even realize until later. Like, Oh, your parents are jazz musicians. Well, that makes sense to me now, but I, I don't remember why I'm talking about that. Oh, cause of like, f- you know, forgetting to think about like what our, an arrival point isn't equal for different people. Right. Yeah. The ankle behind right. the head. But the interesting <laughs> yeah. thing is too, though, if you don't have all of that conditioning, there's a lot more freedom to be creative Absolutely. and to do your own thing. I've seen that over and you over know? again as well. It's another reason why I like having these conversations. Cause I think we, it's easy to think that your perspective is the only perspective. Um, and talking about, you know, what does, what does, what do these choices mean to you? What, what's the benefit? You know, I don't know. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I couldn't, I definitely agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I didn't play music for a long time, but I listened to a lot of music for about 10 years. In your twenties? In my twenties and and into my thirties. I played some in college, but it wasn't my major. Well, how did, what did you end up, uh, how did you end up what did you end up choosing to, to do in, in that? <laughs> I majored in Italian. Wow. How did you choose that? Because <laughs> I just enjoyed it. Yeah. And and really, my major was the college experience. Sure. I really needed to, at that time in my life, I really needed to learn how to be a social person. Mm-hmm. I was very introverted and shy and... Um, when I was, I went to IU Bloomington, Indiana, yeah. Indiana University. Yeah, and it's a great music program. It was uh, a great language program really? too, actually. Yeah. But I just needed to learn how to be a social person at that time. Yeah, and so I worked. I sent. I paid for my own college, yeah. and paid for it. You know, it's just something you can't do these days working two nights a week in a pizza place. Wow. And, um, but I feel like working in that pizza place taught me as much as I learned in college. Wow. Yeah. Tell you know, me working more. as a server, it was just, and it was a great job. The people yeah. that worked there were all really fun, interesting people. And, um, it was just a really, do you want to tell me more about what you mean? Like what, like what did you learn? Like, or what did it do to your mind to like, you know, to to learn in that environment? Um. Well, I mean, I learned about people for one thing. About you know, and 
some of it I'm not sure I can say. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> because there were there were illegal things involved. I mean, I think probably the statute of limitations is far well. I'm far sure it, gone. it is. It's like forty years <laughs> I think ago. You can tell whatever. But you I want. mean, <laughs> just just you know, having friends that. Instead of when I was in my hometown, you know, you had to be really careful what you said and what you did. And just to be able to have these people in my life that were so open and to have conversations about things that um, that I couldn't have had in my hometown. Um, For example, when I was in eighth grade and I was getting ready to join the Presbyterian Church to going through their communicants classes, and my parents were not super religious. They were, they were agnostic, actually. Wow, that's but that's, they were that's on- big at that yeah. time, right? Yeah. But, but they were honest with our minister about it, and he mm-hmm. was totally fine with it. He was pretty liberal. Cool. Um, but I started waking up in the middle of the night having, it's almost like these transmissions of things about the laws of karma. Wow. And it made so much sense to me. <laughs> It why made you, so much more. Why did you know about karma? I didn't know. Oh, it was I see. just I didn't know until okay. later. Till I was in Bloomington and I stayed up one night and had a really long conversation with this kind of philosophical guy that was um, that I was working with at this oh, restaurant. Right. He said, "Oh, that's Buddhism." Wow. But I sort of carried this in my heart for many years and didn't tell anyone because oh. I felt like I couldn't. Or it would just be one more, you know, one more... A check against you. Check against yeah. me in my hometown. I really get that. I yeah. really understand that. Yeah. I feel like I'm dealing with that even now. Like, I feel like I feel like it's one of the main things that I'm, like, talking about in therapy. And I was, I was just... Um, one of my... Like, I have very few people from my childhood that I still talk with. But I have this one friend who um, we met each other at, like, musical theater summer day camp as children and both were just like artists you know Mm -hmm. like I think we were just tiny artists and we've stayed in touch his wife is singing in Hadestown which is here in Utah they're here Uh and he's following along the tour so he we were talking on Wednesday he came over and um talking about this exact thing of like I find and I I'm I'm trying really hard to solve this problem but like I don't know how to do it. I'm still figuring it out. But I find that a lot of times when I'm making art, I am making art that I want to make. And I'm making art that is like kind of pure in that way, like telling the stories that I want to tell. But I do find that I have this kind of shadow, like it's some kind of archetype of like the people in my family and the people from my childhood who raised me and thinking like, how will they respond to like, I think I still, I think I still am in that filter and have that filter on and I'm trying not to get checks against me. Right. <laughs> like I'm still, I, I like totally still get that. that. I totally get that. Um, yeah. You know, once I went to let it go, God, yeah, please, once continue. I went to Bloomington though, it was kind of like, Oh, this is the bigger world that I've been right. really longing for, right. you know, people who are tolerant and, yeah. You know, just getting to know such a diversity of of different people and people who were into different things, and yeah. um, and then I moved out west to Utah, or what's that? To Utah, where where did you moved out west? Where? Oh well, I first 
um, from Indiana. I first actually moved to Las Vegas, believe it or not. Yeah. It's not. When? It was in 1980. And that happened because I met a guy that I ended up marrying for uh, being married to for nine years. Wow. I'm sorry. How old were you? I was 25. Okay. Wow. So young. Um, I wanted to not skip over this thing that you had said before about not playing a lot of music in your 20s, but consuming oh. a lot of music. Yeah. Because I do think that's really important. And I I talk a lot on this podcast about like the consumption of art being creative as well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say more about that? Oh, it was extremely important. <laughs> yeah, please tell um, me everything. In my family, we only listen to classical music. Sure. And... You know, in high school, I started listening to a little bit of popular music, but um, I got way into the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And I saw them 40 times. Yeah. Wow. Oh over my gosh. a period of wow. years. And then <laughs> it I took also. Took me a second to like process that number. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> and I also really got into um, the kind of new grass acoustic. Americana music at that time. Um, When I was in Bloomington, I also worked in a bar um, called the Bluebird that had a lot of jazz and a lot of blues artists. And I just, I was really consuming. I mean, I can't even tell you how many concerts I've been to in my life. I mean, thousands. Yeah, wow. But um, I was really consuming all this different kind of, of music. And... Definitely the Grateful Dead and this, um, these sort of, well, the artists that play in the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, yeah. which um, I just went for my 39th time wow. this year. <laughs> my 39th year in a row, except for the COVID year yeah. that they didn't hold the oh festival. And I, I do work for them, I write for them. So um, I've gotten to know some of the artists. And, yeah. But anyway, the Grateful Dead. Um, just the adventuresome nature of what they did, that they would go on to the stage without a set list and they just yeah. they just let it happen. It's like a different set of values. Yeah, and it really, yeah. it actually very much influenced the way I teach yoga. Wow. That I just kind of listen to what my students need instead of planning. I started out planning classes for yeah. several years and, you know, this this pose is going to take X amount of time, yeah. and this one is going to take X yeah. amount of time, and I would plan them out, you know, yeah. to a T. But then I started realizing that it just doesn't, it, it's not always what my students need, and I wanted to respond to what they needed instead. Yeah. And so I think that this whole Grateful Dead way of doing things yeah. really influenced me and gave me the confidence that's cool. partly to do that. I love that. I, I'm like, yeah, I've, I've felt this way about you for a long time. Like, I don't know that we've ever had a conversation. Certainly we've like been in the same room several times mm-hmm. and like we're friends on Facebook and I, Facebook shows me a lot of the things that you write, I think. <laughs> so I have this idea, like I, I have this, I have this feeling that like you're a person who thinks creatively and it is very like responsive. Like you're always taking in, you know, new, um, new ideas. Like it, it, you, you give off that kind of a feeling, I think. And, um, yeah, I've been really interested in like talking with you about how those things evolved. And that's, it's a perfect, it's, it's a perfect little key, the grateful dead key. Uh-huh. Um, when you moved to Vegas, 
uh, where was your creativity at that point? Like, I think maybe, I think maybe at this point in the conversation, like, I don't know enough about your history to like, know like where to ask, but I, I would love to know kind of how all of your different mediums like have sort of, um, come and come and gone in their phases throughout your life. And also just how you've evolved as like a creative individual, a creative mind. Like, so I'll ask little questions, but maybe just tell me your story. Okay. So in the reason that we ended up in Las Vegas is my, my former husband's father lived there. Okay. And we only lived there for less than two years because okay. we just really actually didn't. Yeah. It just was not our place. Sure. Um, and we moved to Salt Lake after that. But okay. while I was in Las Vegas, I got a job that I really liked working as a black and white printer in a custom photo lab. So printing for different photographers. Cool. And you were into photography already, right? You had done with taken, it in your, Yeah, I had taken okay. some classes in college, but okay. I love darkroom work. I just oh. love it. And I did it for about seven years. So I did it for about a year and a half in Las Vegas. And then I did it for another six years or so in Salt Lake. Cool. But then the chemicals really started getting to me. Sure. And I just couldn't. I just realized I couldn't be around the chemicals anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so I love Lightroom now because <laughs> I can do all the stuff I used to do right. in, you know, when I was printing. Right but without the chemicals. So cool. I really love, I mean, Photoshop. Lightroom, you mean like Adobe Lightroom? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I love playing with Lightroom and, yeah. and I've gotten back into photography since, cool. since digital cameras started becoming right. much higher quality. So your visual art journey has mostly been a photography journey, right? Recent in recent okay. years. Yeah. Okay. It was it was drawing and pastels and okay. charcoal before that. Before, like, in your childhood or like in your the in bulk college, of your adulthood. Okay, okay. College and and somewhat after college, but then I just started really getting into photography once I got that job because I could, you know, I could process my own film and print yeah. my own stuff. And then when I stopped printing because of the chemicals, I just kind of it wasn't as fun yeah, to do photography. Sure. Until until digital came things. along, I see. Um, your relationship with like Eastern philosophy did when did that like pick back up, or was it like after you talked with that person at the pizza place? Did it stay? Like, did that kind of come and go? Well, it stayed in the in the back of my mind. Sure. Um, I was still in party mode at that sure. <laughs> at that point in my life. <laughs> But it, it was always it was always something that I felt that felt foundational to me. Okay. And I started practicing yoga in 1982. Okay. And, and you had said you moved to Vegas in 1980. Yeah. Okay. And I started my yoga in Las Vegas. Okay. And then we moved about five months after that, and I came to Salt Lake and continued. Okay. Was yoga like here in 1980? In 1982? Like. What was it like here? <clears throat> not I much. I wasn't born yet. <laughs> it's certainly not like it is now. Yeah, yeah. There were, you know, maybe four or five teachers in Salt okay. Lake, something like that, when I first came here. So when you first came to Utah, you had you had started a relationship with yoga. You were doing photography. What was happening with music? I was just listening 
that was during the period when I was not really playing. I was just listening, okay. going to lots and lots of concerts still and lots of dead shows. Okay, cool. My and what ex- about what about like the the part of you that's a writer? What was going on with that part of you at that time? You know, that that didn't come back until I um until I started doing meditation. Okay. Which I started, was when? Um I did my first meditation retreat in 1988. I did my first five days silent retreat. That's the year I was born. And it was so transformational. (laughs) And And you were, so you would have been like 30 around that time? Well, I was 33 Okay. Okay. at that time or 32 at that time. Okay, cool. So how did you, how did that happen? Like, how did you get to like, how do you go from being a person who like barely knows anything about Eastern philosophy to being a person who goes to a silent meditation retreat? Well, um, I was, I had been practicing yoga for six years at that time. And the teachers that, um, were in Salt Lake for, uh, that I worked with and, and actually sort of apprenticed with, I assisted in their classes. They brought, they were, occasionally bringing nationally known teachers to Salt Lake, you know, back in the day when there'd be like 25 people in their classes instead of 200 or something. But um, this one couple that they brought, um, Pujari and Abhilasha Keys, who are, turns out they have a cabin, a retreat center, very small retreat center in Duck Creek. Okay. They came and, it just, that workshop completely blew me away. And I went to a yoga work retreat at their place the next summer in 1986. And we did some meditation, but not, not the kind of like, you know, extreme meditation that you do when you go on a silent retreat, that's all sitting and walking meditation. Um, So I had had a little bit of experience with it. And I thought, you know, this is pretty interesting. And then Pujari invited me to come to a five-day retreat that winter, and I just said, nah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And then the next year, I thought, well, maybe, you know, it sounds kind of interesting. Maybe I'll do it. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. It sounds impossible. It was so hard. And I was so resistant. And for the first couple days, most of my mental energy, when I was, I was trying to be mindful but you know my mind was just all over the place yeah. and a lot of my mental energy went toward coming up with an escape plan sure <laughs> because yeah. you had to take a a snowmobile to get to their place oh and you know it was it wasn't <laughs> yeah. easy and it's like to make a phone call even wow. everybody in the house would have heard you making a phone <gasps> call oh and gosh. so i would have had to walk a mile you know through this 8 foot snow to this little store at the bottom of the, at the bottom of the, uh, the hill, the, the subdivision yeah. to make a phone call, wow. but I had it all figured out. <laughs> and the retreat was supposed to be five days. Yeah. Wow. And now you do like a month. Don't you do like a month? I've done a retreat? month four times. Holy cow. That's crazy. And this last, this last one was 19 days. Wow. Jeez. That's, I can't even imagine. I'm like, I'm, I'm so chatty. <laughs> Well, I feel like you it know, would the make not, me feel crazy. You'd be surprised. <laughs> like, I'm the not sure. talking is, I mean, for me as an yeah. introvert, it was really easy, but it's also a relief. It's like 
when you sit down at a table with someone like on this retreat I've been on or I was on a couple weeks ago, there are a hundred people. And if you sit down, you know, across from somebody, you don't have to tell your story. Mm. It's like such a relief. Yeah. I don't know. I can't, I, I have to, I think that would be difficult for me, but yeah, I, cause I really, I really am so verbal. <laughs> Like, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, everybody's different. And yeah. Philip is very loquacious, and he yeah. doesn't mind the not talking. Yeah, I He always it's... wants to get back to talking at yeah. the end. Yeah. I'm usually okay with not getting back to talking sure. too much. Yeah. But um, what turned it for me on that first retreat was I was, you know, doing my normal grousing about it in my head as I was the third night as I was walking downstairs to go to bed and I was trying to be mindful again as I was walking downstairs and I went to go brush my teeth in the bathroom and I reached for the doorknob and I was actually really mindful of this whole process of reaching out, touching the coolness and smoothness of the knob and turning it and it was as if it was as if it was the first time I'd ever done it in my life. It's beautiful. It was absolutely exquisite. Wow. And then I just realized, okay, there is something to this. Yeah. You know, all I was doing was turning a doorknob yeah. and, but it was, you know, just this transform transformational wow. moment. Yeah. And that's what, and then, you know, after that, I went into this state of rapture and then I went into a wow. state of really profound peace. And then after that, I went right back to my mind, you know, going right. crazy. Wow. <laughs> Can I ask, like, with following the Grateful Dead and stuff, were you were you um, having experiences with, like, psychedelics? Oh, yeah. That, do you want to say anything about that? Um, definitely <clears throat> meditation. Um and psychedelics can put you in a in a similar yeah similar experience and i mean even like when i was playing piano as a child i consider that to be my my first meditation my first experience yeah. with samadhi yeah. was just getting so involved and so completely absorbed yeah. that time stopped yeah but yeah definitely i did i mean that was for me, that was part of the Grateful Dead experience. Yeah. It isn't always for everyone, but it was definitely a part of it for me. Well, and I have to imagine it's it's a, related to, you know, creativity and like you know, like I'm I'm obsessed with like paradigm shifting. Like I every time I feel like I you know learn get new facts or talk to someone new and have like a new perspective. It's like, it's very thrilling, you know, like I, I love, like, I love being presented with the kinds of things that like change my mind. And, um, yeah, like I, I, I know a little bit, I don't have much personal experience, but I've read, I've, I've like read more than I've like experienced, but, um, you know, the idea of like the, the default mode network, like being kind of shifted by psychedelics and also by art, you know, like mm -hmm. it's just an interesting, it's an interesting topic. Um, you know, how, how you, how your mind can be like a medium almost like you can 
like changing and and rebuilding your brain is like a, a creative project. Yeah. And that feels that yeah. feels related to that to me. You know, it's interesting because we just watched there's a new series with Michael Pollan. Yeah, change your mind. Yeah, yeah. And we just watched the psilocybin one last night. Yeah. And I have had a lot of experience with that in yeah. the past, not in many years, but yeah. It's really true that one of the things that was consistent with all the different times I did the various types of psychedelics was there was always a point where I would think, you know, the stuff that I think is important is just so trivial. There's this whole huge world out there that we don't even pay attention to. And I'm sure that contributed or was a part of my curi- my spiritual curiosity. Right. Does it feel know? related to being an artist too? Like does does uh-huh. yeah, it seems to me like a related endeavor. Like I feel like art to me is about discovery and about curiosity and like being a human is about those things to me too. <laughs> like it feels very parallel. Like right. what is there if not like I I feel like I you know, I left the LDS church now I don't know. It was like a bit of a process. And I, when I was having like my like faith crisis, I was faculty at BYU. So it was complicated, but, but it's been, you know, maybe six, seven years. And, uh, I think a lot about morality, you know, like it's something that I like, I almost, I feel like it's maybe a bit of a privilege as an adult to like rebuild my morality, like outside of a, Uh an institution, you know? And I think a lot about, like, I feel as though like my, my two kind of biggest like moral pillars are like honesty and curiosity. (laughs) Like, I feel like those are like, Uh that's what my like morality is built on and art and curiosity. And I don't know, those things feel very related. Um, what happened in like your thirties with your creative journey and you can include anything you want. Well, I mean, um, once I started doing meditation, see, the curious thing is when I was in college, I, I didn't write that much, even though I was doing smoking a lot of pot yeah. and, um, it didn't have the, that sort of creative effect on me. Yeah. It, wow. Especially after a while, it became kind of numbing Interesting. for me. Um, and I haven't done that in decades and decades, but I haven't really done anything in decades, (laughs) but, um, when I started practicing meditation, it's like that fog lifted Wow! and suddenly writing just was starting to come back to me and it was just spilling out of me actually. Wow. What kinds of things were you writing? What's that? What kinds of things were you writing? Like what, uh, types of work? at the time, and I, I probably wouldn't have even known, except at the time I was going back to the U, hoping to get into the physical therapy program. Okay. And I had to take my IU credits wouldn't transfer sure. over to the U for my basic writing class. So I took a basic writing class. And just the assignments, it was like all this, these words and this creativity was just wow. spilling out of me. And I... And I know it had to do with the meditation wow. and the fact that I really wasn't using anything anymore. Right. But um, that's so interesting. Like, but you, you're not. Do you? Do you feel like that's just like? Was it a matter of like finding the right thing to unlock your creativity, or do you feel like 
meditation is more creative for everyone? Well, there is a theory, and I think I've found this to be true for myself, that when you stop running, using your mental energy to run the same thoughts over and over, because one of the things that you realize when you start meditating is that, yeah, your thoughts are going all the time. But the other thing is, it's often the same stuff going all the through all the time. So interesting. Well, I'll just say, I haven't really talked about this, but, um, I got a medical cannabis prescription just like, uh, about a year or so ago. And I feel like it has that effect on me. Like uh, my brain will do things that I never, like, it's a different conversation Uh again, that like default mode network, like shifting, like, you know, just, um, like my brain will present things to me that I never have considered. Yeah. Which I find really useful. I mean, I think that if you're using these things skillfully, that's one thing. I don't think I was using marijuana skillfully when I was in college. I just was older. I'm older. Right, right. I was, I mean, it was just a big party for me. Um, Well, I think it's, it's a testament, if anything, to the fact that like, well, I don't know, but that these things maybe are, are less about the the thing, whether it's meditation or whatever it may be, you know, uh, exercise, psychedelics, any, whatever it may be. And more about like your human development, you know, like where are mm-hmm. you in your, in your own kind of process, but yeah. And with the, um, with the meditation, if you're starting to be able to say, no, I don't need to go there with particular, you know, repetitive thoughts. Mm. Then it's like there's all this room for other stuff to come in. Right, right, right. Um, there's a there's statistics that one of the meditation teachers cited a few years ago that I think are so interesting. She said that we have anywhere from twelve thousand to sixty thousand thoughts a day. Yeah. Ninety eight percent of those thoughts are the same ones we had yesterday. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And 85% are negative Ugh. because, you know, it's a, it's an evolutionary right. S- strategy right. that we, you know, that, um, we needed to at one point and maybe even sometimes now that we needed to be suspicious about the things around us to, right. in order to protect ourselves. Right. Um, so but our mind still does that. Right. There's a, so there's a negativity bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so sorry, I had asked like what was happening in your thirties and you started answering, oh, you went back to, you went back to oh, school for physical therapy. You started doing more meditation. Yeah. And I, I ended up not. Oh, writing. You were talking about yeah, writing. writing. Yeah. And I ended up not going back to school. Okay. Because but you did start my, writing more. Well, at the same time, my ex-husband and I were were letting go of the relationship okay. and it was just too hard to sure. try to go to school and and deal with that and we remained friends he and I remained friends he passed away in 2016 I'm sorry um but we stayed you know we worked very hard to maintain a friendly that's beautiful and very and close that's, relationship that's creative too <laughs> yeah like, but um, but in my you, were, you, I think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, then in my 30s, I, I was doing a lot. That's when I was doing a whole lot of um, longer meditation retreats. Okay. 
30s and into my 40s. I was doing, I did four um, 30-day retreats in the 90s, wow. 92, 94, 96, 98. And then I did a three-week one in, in uh, 2001. Do you want to reflect on like how what that like did or does for your creativity or like how, wh- what's the Venn diagram between that and like your art your art and creativity like well with the, <clears throat> I started playing music again in 93 and that's in your that's in your early early 40s yeah okay yeah Just I started me playing music in like 90... how old you are <laughs> yeah. well actually it was my my late 30s okay but um I went through a, after my first 30-day retreat, I had a really profound insight, and after which I had to change my life a lot, and I went through a dark night of the soul yeah. for about a year, and I was really glad that I had my teachers because they understood what I was going through. <laughs> Do you want to share anything about it? You don't have to, but... Well, okay, what happened on the retreat was... We were listening to a talk about self-love, and we'd been practicing this practice called metta, which I, which um, nine days of this most recent retreat, metta, and it's a kindness practice, okay, um, goodwill practice. But I had always struggled with sending, with doing it for myself, mm. and I, you know, I still struggled with it for years. But while I was on this retreat. I was on the 25th day. It seemed like the 25th day was always sort of a uh, an earth-shaking day for mm. me on these retreats. Wow. But um, after we listened to this talk, I went downstairs and was going to brush my teeth, same sort of scenario. But I looked at myself in the mirror, and I saw myself just instantly as like a toddler wow. in the mirror. Yeah. And I saw that I was just this innocent being that was really just love at my core. Yeah. And in that moment, I realized everyone else's too. Yeah. And I, and I felt like, oh my God, why have I been treating myself so poorly for all these years? Yeah. Um, my family's ethos, part of my family's ethos was that the worst thing you could be was selfish. Mm-hmm. And so to me, sending kindness to myself was selfish. Right. You know, and makes, it still took me a long time to kind of get over that. Sense to but me. <laughs> I struggle with that as well. Yeah. My family's ethos is definitely similar. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> it just completely changed me at a cellular level. And I realized that I had set my life up in a way that around a belief that I yeah. was not worthy of being wow. treated well. Yeah. And so when I went back into my life, it was just extremely painful. Yeah. Um, I was in a job where I was being used. I was in a really horrible relationship. Yeah. Um, everything that I had done in my life was really painful. Yeah, yeah. And I had to just let go of everything except my house and my cat. Wow. And, That's um, so brave. And I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm really inspired by that. Like, I, I think, you know, this, this, like, what do they call it? Like this sunk cost fallacy. Like, mm-hmm. I think that is so difficult to overcome in, in our culture, in our species. Like, but I think so many of us, like, I don't think this is rare that like, you know, we grow up with these like 
very harmful ideologies mm-hmm. um, and like just perspectives and trying to, pe- you know, appeal uh, that <laughs> like in your, you know, in your, in your thirties, forties, like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that's when it happens mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Yeah. You finally like have your brain fully developed in like what you're in your thirties, right? Or mm-hmm. like it, late twenties is when your brain is fully developed, right? And like maybe for the first time in like this history of our species, we live a lot longer than that time right? and have like the opportunity to really like make changes that like last a long time. But we have very, very few blueprints of how to do it. People aren't talking about it. I find that anyway. Right. We stop, we stop <coughs> growing. I think a lot of times like, yeah, in the thirties. Well, that's that's brave. That's very inspiring. I appreciate you telling that. Yeah, it was uh, a total paradigm change. Yeah. You know, and like I said, it was just so painful to be in my life. I had to let go of everything. And that's so brave. It's very scary. um, It's still, you know, the process of being able to practice kindness for myself didn't really completely, that challenge didn't completely go away until um, 2016 wow. when I went on a, I mean, I, there were times when I could and then other times when it was just like, nah. Wow. Um, but in 2016, um, on the first day of the 19-day retreat, I, I got a phone call that I had breast cancer. Charlotte, I did not know that. Yeah. Well, it was really, um, the timing was actually really good because I couldn't have been in a better place to receive the diagnosis. But um, I thought, okay, I'm just going to do metta practice for myself because, you know, it's okay for me to do that since I have cancer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And when I came home, I could tell there was a marked difference in the way I... You know, if I made a mistake, if I dropped something on the floor and broke it, I didn't say, oh, you idiot. It was just like, oh, well. You're a mammal and the end. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Wow, that's beautiful. How old were you when you met Philip? Um, I was, well, it was 1999. And I met him because I wrote about him for Catalyst. Okay. At that yeah. time, I was writing the arts column for Catalyst, wow. and I wrote something about one of his premieres that was coming up. And, and sorry, how old were you around that time? I would have been 44. Wow, wow, wow. When we met. Wow. Um, you two seem like such a cool pair. <laughs> like, it's such fierce, like, companions. It seems that way to me. Yeah, we're, and we're <clears throat> very different in a lot of ways, but very compatible in yeah. a lot of ways too and different doesn't have to be incompatible right 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 yeah it's really inspiring well i'm like i what what do you want to tell me about like your 40s 50s 60s like connect do you want to connect me from like like up until 2016 when like this kind of bigger change happened um well i mean there was red rock rondo which was yeah, really how did you get super back into oboe yeah, well, I got back into oboe in 93 Okay. Um, because my oboe was stolen. That was one of the things that happened in that year when I had the dark night of the soul. Right. Wow. 
and I my homeowner's insurance bought me a new one. But, it, you know, of course, it wasn't this great Hans Meinig adjusted right. <laughs> oboe that my oboe teacher was always asking me if he wanted to trade wow. or if I wanted to trade with oh him because gosh. it was such a great instrument. It wasn't that, but I just thought, you know, I'm just going to get back into it. If I'm going to use the money my insurance gives me to get another oboe, I'm just going to get back into it. And yeah. so I started... Um, taking a few lessons and I played in the West Valley Symphony for just a couple of years while I was oh. trying to get my chops back. Yeah. And it wasn't all that fun. Yeah. It wasn't high art. <laughs> no, it was, you know, I mean, it was a good place to start because I just hadn't done it in so long. Yeah. And then I started playing in the Salt Lake Symphony in 96 yeah. wow. and I've been in, been, in that orchestra ever since for the listener so i interviewed robert baldwin uh his episode will be in season six and charlotte's episode is in season seven but robert conducts the salt lake symphony and my father-in-law's in in the salt lake symphony right which is why i met you on the first day that i lived (laughs) in utah right (laughs) it's such a small world isn't it like i know weirdly i love those kinds of stories though like stories that make the world feel small it's like it's I live for it. Yeah, and Gary Gary's such a funny he's such a great being. He is a great being. Yeah. I really like talking with him. I feel like I I feel like well, I say this to my like uh siblings in law all the time, but I feel like I'm I feel like I'm really trying to like inherit the Gary mantle of being <laughs> like the um the family uh knowledge haver. <laughs> like knowledge Gary haver, knows but... about everything. <laughs> But court jester too, <laughs> yeah, in a in his a quiet dry, way. Yeah, dry sense of humor for yeah. sure. Yeah, I don't think I'll. I don't know that I'll be able to to inherit the Gary Mantle in that way. But I really, I really will try. I really am trying to grow into the person in the family who knows a little bit about any topic. Uh huh. <laughs> Something that like it's a service that Gary provides to our family. Yeah. Like, yeah. He just always has an anecdote. He just knows like he just knows a little bit about like everything and mm-hmm. a lot about some things. Um. So you got back into oboe. Do you do you compose music ever? Um, the only, um, I say quote composing I've done has been, um, just in, within Red Rock Rondo and Blue Haiku, you know, and, and some stuff playing with, you know, here and there with some other musicians like Kate McLeod and Anka Summerhill. I have, you know, written my own parts, but, but generally I, I haven't written anything from scratch when I do is to listen to what everybody else is doing and try to fit in. Cool. And that's where all my years of going to Telluride has been so helpful yeah. because, you know, I've listened to these musicians like, and I think in particular, Jerry Douglas, do you know who he is? I don't. He's like probably the best dobro player wow. ever. Cool. <laughs> and he tours with Alison Krauss. Oh, okay. Okay. <clears throat> cool. But he, um, just watching him and how he, you know, the dobro is kind of a, it's a color instrument. I mean, he plays it as a solo instrument, but when he plays with other people, he really, he knows how to inject, how to use the color of that yeah. instrument to create a mood. Wow. And 
I feel like all the years of watching him really helped me understand yeah. how to make the oboe fit in with all these stringed instruments yeah. where the oboe wasn't overpowering things. Right. It's not like a rhythm instrument that you play all the time. It's an instrument that helps to set a mood and complements yeah. what's going it's, it's on. Like a, it always feels like a, like a character to me. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know what to ask. I have like, I have like two kind of thoughts and I'm not sure how to like put them into words, but um, maybe, yeah, I feel like these skills, like something like knowing where, like what parts to play. Like, I feel like this is like a, it's such a beautiful like body of knowledge or like such an incredible skill. And I think it's a skill that is like very difficult to put into words, but it, it is, I think maybe what I want to ask and it's okay if you don't have an answer, but does that skill, like how does that skill knowing what parts to play with the oboe in someone else's composition, does that feel related to like how you interact with like people? Like, does it, does it feel like a related skill? Um, I, yeah, I, my initial response is yes. Yeah. I can't, I don't know that I can put it into words except yeah. that. I can almost kind of feel it, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Except that I know that I'm a person that doesn't, I mean, except in a conversation like this with, yeah. with one person, I'm generally a person that is not real anxious to get my opinion in there sure, sure. <laughs> but I feel like if there's something and I don't li really like to do small talk yeah. but if there's something that I feel like can contribute I'll contribute something that will actually further a conversation I'll contribute it yeah. but I'm not just going to talk just to talk right it's not talking is is actually Unless it's unless it's productive, it's actually draining for me. Yeah. And so like this conversation is productive. It's it's not Good. draining to me. Good. But you know, if I was yeah. in a group of people like a well, in the same situation in a group of musicians, I'm not gonna say something just to say it. Yeah. I'm gonna say something if I feel like it adds. Totally. <clears throat> yeah, I've been thinking a lot lately about medium and it's interesting, like, my, this podcast is a medium for me, but more so, like, my life is a medium, <laughs> you know, like, my brain is a medium, mm -hmm. my relationships are a medium, conversation is a medium. I just, I've been going through something in the last, you know, maybe year or so that's very, like, everything feels related. <laughs> like everything feels very like it's everything is everything and everything is nothing <laughs> like right. something. And I feel like these kinds of musical skills, like it's, I think it's maybe one reason why it feels to me like music is a workshop for humanity. Mm. And it's that kind of thing, like knowing <clears throat> what to add. Like I wanted to also ask you, like you play just from my perspective, you play in these groups that are, that seems so communicative, that seem really beautifully collaborative. Um, and I, I mean, okay, I'm saying many things. I'm kind of thinking out loud, but I think what I'd love, I'd love to spend the rest of our time talking about, if it's okay with you is like, what are you, where are you at now? Like what feels curious to you now? How are you seeing the world? Like what paradigm shifts have been exciting to you in your life? Like just 
I don't know what's interesting from your perspective as a person who's been like thinking about these things for much longer than I have. What, what can well, you, you want to tell me or talk um, about? I'm still, for example, processing things from this last retreat yeah. and I'll get to that. Please. But, um, yeah, the musical situations that, you know, Red Rock Rondo and Blue Haiku were very collaborative. Um, Philip presented the songs and the structures of the songs, but we all, yeah, we all contributed, you know, of course, Harold and Flavia are very creative that way. Yes. And Hal and, and Kate are also pros. And so we would all sort of work together <clears throat> on those. And that was really fun for me. And I'm, I'm sad that it's not happening now because it was really a fun way for me to work with music. Yeah. Um, I love playing in the orchestra too. I love sitting in the middle of an orchestra with beautiful, incredible music, you know, playing all around yeah. me. And, um, it's a wonderful feeling to participate in a large group of musicians. Yeah, it it's really, really is special. It really it's, is. It's something like it, it gives us access, I think, to something that's so beautifully human that I think is very rare. We, we rarely get to feel it. It's, it's yeah, there, there is, I mean, it's not just the, I mean, it is partly just the whole physical sensation right. of being, of being in the midst of it, but it's also that all these people are coming together to do this common thing that is uplifting. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, and Rob is such a great leader for that. He's such a great inspiration for that because he just he's so kind and respectful and level. so knowledgeable yes you know it's such a beautiful combination of things kind and respectful and knowledgeable it's, right right yeah. so what what are you thinking about lately like what are the things that are in your mind what are the what are the topics that are lighting your brain up lately like just what's going on in your mind well um <clears throat> well I was on retreat my my meta practice made a huge, a huge shift to, um, a, to explain the practice a little yeah, bit. Please. One of the, the ways you practice, it's kind of like practicing scales in a way, yeah. is you choose a person, you usually you start with an easy person. For some people, that's themselves. For some of us, it's, you know, maybe a dog or a cat. Yeah, okay. Um, but you start with an easy being and you send these four phrases to them. You offer, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. And you do it all day long <laughs> on retreat. Right. And um, it's like I said, it's like practicing scales. Yeah. But this time around, I was, I was doing it in the first couple days and just feeling like none of it connected. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, I just realized that I was trying to manufacture metta, but it was already there. Wow, yeah. And that I didn't need to use the phrases anymore, that it's just, I mean, I can be thinking about, I could have, you know, gone off on a thought pattern about a, a political situation that I'm not thrilled about. Sure, you can say, <laughs> and, I mean, you can say anything you want, yeah. it's very... I, okay, so I could, I could, you know, Donald Trump could come into my brain and I could think, oh, oh. yeah. And then, but then I think, oh, yeah, meta. And the meta is just right there. Yeah. 
and it did, and it no longer feels like it's me sending meta to someone else. It just feels like it's wow. I'm just in this field. Yeah, like of, it just is the material of everything. Yeah, and it's and there's no me, there's no other person. It's just this field, and it's not <clears throat> just. <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me it's, it's just not just dry. the meta the meta practice also includes practicing compassion and which is um <clears throat> sorry That's kindness funny. toward um suffering and yeah. those who are suffering which can of course include yourself yeah and then empathetic joy which is a really interesting practice because it's um there's no word for it in our, in our language. It's the, the Pali word is mudita. And what it means is happiness for the joy and success of others. Yeah. It's, um, are you into Brene Brown? I, I know who she is. She yeah. just did this HBO series with her new book, Atlas of the Heart. And she talked about this term like Freudenfreude instead of like Schadenfreude, mm-hmm. which is like joy at others joy, which seems like, the similar idea, but I hadn't yeah. really thought about that before. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very bright energy. And when you feel it in comparison to its opposite, which is envy or jealousy, yeah. it's like envy and jealousy is this little closed, tight yeah. fisted, you know, very, it feels yeah. very small. Yeah. And then when you really get into this mudita, it's like, <laughs> it's like this infinite joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the the final of the four Brahma Viharas is equanimity, yeah. which is, you know, just an evenness of mind, which is something that I really, um, on the retreat where I found out I had cancer uh, on the first day, that was one thing that was so inspiring to me and so affirming about all these years of meditation practice was that I just never went into any drama. I never thought, Oh, why me? What did I do to deserve this? I never went into all of that. It was just kind of like, okay, this is not what I wanted. This was not the diagnosis I was hoping for, but I just need to deal with it. You know, and there was no, I didn't make the suffering I didn't make it any worse for myself. There was so much equanimity around it. And I was just so grateful for the practice. And so, I mean, a lot of what I've been thinking about recently has just been a a reaffirmation of the the path that I'm on Mm. But still an openness to whatever is going to come from it, because I can't predict that. I can never predict that. Right. How do you balance like your like wit and your sense of humor and maybe like, you know, well, I hope I'm not misunderstanding this, but like, I feel like I gather that like you're frustrated about several things in the politics, which like (sighs) we all are. I mean, well, we all aren't, but I am as well. How do you, how do you balance those kinds of things with like these, you know, very abundant, like joy, joyful. Uh, yeah. How do you balance it? That's yeah, creative know, too, like a little dance. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, on this retreat, 
I got the first feasible answer to that that I've ever heard. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Please tell me. It's uh, please tell me. Um, because people were repeatedly asking, okay, how I don't feel like I can practice meta for Donald Trump yeah. or Mitch McConnell or I mean I can't wish them well. And the answer has always been, well, you know, but if they're happy then then they wouldn't be behaving the way they are, but Absolutely. And and that's true. But it's still difficult. Absolutely. And on this retreat, one of several of the teachers said, you know, metta is also you could look at it as absence of ill will. Yeah. So if you want to practice with these people, you can just say, you can give them one phrase, may you be free from hatred. Yeah. And to me, that just really clicked because I, I just think that Donald Trump has done such horrendous damage to this country yeah. and to our social, you know, just the whole social. The entire, like, cultural baseline right and the the lies the corrosive effect that those lies are still having on our culture and the people that believe them and you know he and he knows he's lying you know maybe this is like this is like maybe a a bit of a tangent but i read um, mary trump's book um what was it called too much and never enough yeah and you know i was raised by narcissists (laughs) and I felt so many things reading that book. Like I, 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 it's, it's honestly like as toxic as he is. And I don't use that word lightly. Like it is Mm -hmm. toxic. Oh, he is. I feel like I've, it's actually very easy for me to feel compassion because being raised by a parent that does that kind of a number on you. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't absolve, you know, anything. But right. it's it's just the thing that it makes me think is like, <clears throat> yeah, that these these the the creativity with which we parent, the creativity with which we friend, you know, like even like I was saying before, like even this little anecdote of of you like listening to your friend Chandra mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and feeling like inspired by her just being herself, like just even that act of just paying attention, just thinking what other ways are there to think. It just, it just is such a, it's just like, it's everything. <laughs> like it's all there is. And mm-hmm. it, and if we can do better at that in these like microcosms, like just in these little walking to school with your friend, like just having an open heart there. Like, I wonder if like, anyone had been like more like if anyone outside of like that Trump family, like the, the Trump senior family had been paying attention to those children had been, you know, I don't know. It's just, right. It's a puzzle. Right. I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, I I don't know. I I didn't read Mary Trump's book, so I'm sure, I'm sure you know more about his upbringing than I do. But I mean, from what I have gathered, his father was very hard on him. Horrifying. Like, and just the generational trauma. Right. Yeah. Right. But yes, what the point was with it, with these teachers is they, they just said, you know, there's no one on earth. You can't wish to be free from hatred. Yes, absolutely. And, and so if that, 
if that's what you can do, that is sending metta. That is not just, you know, that's because metta is freedom from ill will. Yeah. And so hatred and ill will. Yeah. And so that was really helpful for me. And I've been dipping my toe and (laughs) dipping my toes into that. Yeah. I think about these kinds of things a lot, like just what, what, where is there good? You know, like where can there be good? And like that also feels like a create creativity practice or, or a curiosity practice Mm -hmm. or a little bit of both. Like just, yeah. And maybe not where is there good in a person, but just where is there humanity? Where is there that innocent being? You know, right. like, cause there is, there is an innocent being like deep down, like we mm-hmm. all start out that way, you know? Right. And it's, I mean, it's like with this transformation that I had with my meta practice, it's like, it's always been there. Yeah. It was just yeah. covered up. Right. By other stuff. And it's the same thing for these you know, even someone like Donald Trump. Now, will he ever uncover it? Will he ever be willing to uncover it? Because you really have to look at yourself and do some very hard, Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to go through a, a lot of... Um, I think the accountability would just yeah, vaporize the, him. I mean, the, it's very humbling. The yeah. practice is yeah. really humbling. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's going through therapy or doing meditation, yeah. doing mindfulness, it's very humbling. And I don't think he'd be willing to do that Yeah, yeah. yeah. at this stage of well, his life. Well, he has a personality disorder. You right. Know? I don't know that, I don't know that people who have a personality disorder, like it's, it's a mental illness. It's not curable, you know, right. um, which is just. Yeah. Know. Narcissism is one of those that is really, really yeah. hard to bring people out of. Yeah. It's insidious and it's, it's, Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is, this is the conversation I love to have. It's like art as a conduit to like just more verdant humanity, you know, or something. (laughs) Um, is there anything else you want to say about art or creativity or anything? Not that I can think of. I think you've asked a lot of wonderful questions (laughs) and sparked, you know, sparked a lot of great conversation. Well, thank you. It's, it's a gift to me. Like it's, it, it's, I'm grateful for it you being here um okay if if there isn't anything more to say i do have two wrap-up questions that i ask everybody okay the first is on this day what is your dream collaboration you can build a whole team you can it has it can be a big collaboration or just a collaboration with one person oh that's a good question and you can really interpret it however you want oh my gosh you know that's a really good question um Possibly writing a book with someone who has more knowledge than I do. Yeah. Um, You know, just to kind of help me, help me um, raise my own level of awareness. But I, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. Do you have like a topic in mind? Um. It'd probably be either about mindful yoga teaching or... The um, Grateful Dead method. What's that? The Grateful Dead method. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yoga, yoga inspired by the Grateful Dead ethos. Exactly. The Grateful Dead ethos, colon, a new method for teaching yoga. <laughs> I mean, musically, a dream collaboration would be, you know, with somebody like Paul McCandless, who's a great, you know, yeah. woodwind player, oboe player also, but who's been... Um, improvising for decades. Wow. That you know, one feels just doable. To, what's that? That one feels doable. Also, a book feels doable. Yeah. I hope both of those things happen. <laughs> I mean, I've met him. <clears throat> I met him backstage at Telluride when yeah. he was performing with Bela Fleck yeah. years ago. Wasn't Bela Fleck is playing at the Moab Music Festival this year, I think. Maybe yeah, headlining. I saw that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, he's and great. he's also performing here, and I can't remember where the... Um, what the venue is it's not yeah. one that i'm familiar with mm. but he's performing in salt lake i would like to go see him i've never seen him live before oh I, he's I great do that and this would be his bluegrass thing cool that's ideal yeah <laughs> um and then finally tell everybody where to find your work well my yoga teaching is on zoom right now because um just because of covid and yeah. i haven't I've decided I don't want to be a studio owner again Yeah, yeah. after, you know, I mean, it was great. It was a really great experience, but I'm just trying to simplify. Sure. So at this point I'm on zoom. Um, Salt Lake symphony is who I'm playing with now. So you could go on their saltlakesymphony.org website to find out when they're performing. How can people find your class on zoom? Um, on my website, which is which is charlottebellyoga.com. Okay. Great. And then oboe at the Salt Lake Symphony. Anything else? Any other like writing you want to draw people to or Um well, at this point the writing I'm doing is for Hugger Mugger Yoga Products blog. Cool. And I just actually they just published a piece today. Sweet. About um kindness meditation for a neutral person. Wow. which is one, one of the practices. But one of the things that was really, and I've been thinking about since the retreat as well, is that when you think about it, there are billions of new, neutral people in this world yeah, <laughs> that yeah. we will never get to know. Right. And so the practice of, of, um, of offering kindness to neutral people is really pretty infinite. So I, that's what I wrote about that they published that. today. I love that. I, I, I just think that's fascinating. And there's so much like thought and discovery to be had, like in that space of like an awareness for people you'll never meet. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. I, maybe this is like, I, I'm like, I'm resist I'm trying to resist the urge to go on a tangent to the very end, but I'll just say quickly, <laughs> um, I have been doing all this traveling and I have these like one-off interactions in like random gas stations, you know, with the clerk there or like whoever else is in the store. And I, I think I do a bit of that type of like, I, I tried to really like appreciate like the people that I'm like, just, you know, washing my hands next to in the right. bathroom sink. Like it's, I, tr I try to kind of like spend that awareness like that these are full people and right. you know we're just passing in this strange moment. It's right. And that's I mean that is <clears throat> oh that is a way to practice it. Yeah. 
It feels exciting to me. It feels yeah. very like abundant. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much for coming here and talking with me. It's a joy to get to know you better. And thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. It's been really fun talking and listening. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.